0: Hey y'all, Eves here. Today's episode contains not just one, but two nuggets of history. These are coming from the TDIHC vault, so you'll also hear two hosts. Consider it a double feature. Enjoy the show.
1: Welcome to the day in history class from HowStuffWorks.com and from the desk of Stuff You Missed in History Class. It's the show where we explore the past one day at a time with a quick look at what happened today in history. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Tracy V. Wilson and it's October 20th. The Saturday Night Massacre took place on this day in 1973 and this goes back to Watergate. Richard Nixon was president and was campaigning for re-election. And in June of 1972, during his re-election campaign, five people broke into the Democratic National Committee headquarters at the Watergate complex of Washington, D.C., These burglars had all kinds of bugs with them that they were planning to plant around the DNC headquarters. They were caught, they were put on trial, some of them entered a guilty plea, and the rest were convicted in January of 1973. At first, it wasn't clear that they had any connection to the White House, but that connection was unearthed through reporting in the Washington Post. An investigation of the president's potential involvement in this break-in started in May of 1973 after Nixon had been re-elected president in a landslide. Archibald Cox was leading the investigation. He was a special prosecutor, and this was a position that the Justice Department had a very hard time filling. No one really wanted to do it. It was viewed as a no-win situation. During this investigation, Cox wanted the White House to hand over a set of secret recordings that had been made in the Oval Office. These were evidence that Nixon had been involved. An appeals court had ordered the president to turn these over along with other documents on October 12th, and he hadn't done it. Instead, the White House had offered a compromise that one senator, who was hard of hearing, and was also heavily medicated following being shot in a robbery attempt. This so one senator was going to listen to the tapes and then confirm whether a White House-prepared summary of the tapes was accurate. Cox saw the many holes in this plan and refused to this compromise. So then on October 20th, Nixon ordered Elliot Richardson, who was the attorney general, to fire Cox as special prosecutor. The attorney general was the only person who had the authority to do that, but he refused to do it and resigned. The deputy attorney general, William Ruckelhaus, then became the acting attorney general. Nixon ordered him to fire Archibald Cox. He also refused to do it and also resigned. Then Solicitor General Robert Bork became the interim attorney general. He was the one who finally carried out Nixon's order to fire Archibald Cox, fearful that the constitutional crisis in play was just going to get worse if he didn't. Almost immediately after these firings, Nixon ordered the special prosecutor's office to be shut down and the investigation ended. FBI agents were sent to seal off the offices of the attorney general and the deputy attorney general and the special prosecutor. Richard Nixon was obviously hoping that this would put an end to the investigation into his activities. It did not. It had the opposite effect. Before... The Saturday Night Massacre, the president had been calling the investigation a witch hunt. He had claimed that the increasingly detailed reporting from the Washington Post that was making a lot of connections between him and what happened at the Watergate and the cover-up of what happened at the Watergate, he was saying that that was all just the work of a liberal newspaper that had a grudge against him. A significant portion of the American public also really thought that this was an unfair effort to kind of get the president. And people were a lot more worried about the economy than they were worried about Watergate. But the Saturday Night Massacre really turned all of that around. It stoked public and media interest into the incident, into the cover-up, and into the president's subsequent behavior. The media began issuing increasingly alarming reports about the ongoing constitutional crisis. Congress started calling for impeachment and filing resolutions calling for the president to resign. Citizens wrote tens of thousands of telegrams overwhelmingly calling for further investigation. People also phoned their representatives. Nixon, under all of this pressure, finally appointed a new special prosecutor and finally agreed to release those tapes. The tapes clearly implicated the president, especially a conversation between Nixon and his chief of staff about using the CIA to hamper the FBI investigation into the break-in. There's also a very famous 18 and a half minute gap in the recordings from shortly after the break-in. Richard Nixon resigned as president on August 8th, 1974, rather than be impeached. Thanks to Tari Harrison for her audio work on this show. You can subscribe to This Day in History class on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and wherever else you get your podcasts. And you can tune in tomorrow for a new way to see the
0: stars. Hi, everyone. I'm Eves, and welcome to This Day in History class, a podcast where we one day ship nugs of history straight to your brain through your ear hole. The day was October 20th, 1951. During a college football game between Oklahoma A&M and Drake University, a white player named Wilbanks Smith assaulted a Black player named Johnny Bright. The incident was indicative of the racial discrimination and violence prevalent at the time. Oklahoma State University didn't formally apologize for the occurrence until more than 50 years later. The Oklahoma A&M Aggies were set to play against the Drake Bulldogs in Stillwater, Oklahoma, at Lewis Field. In 1949, Bright was reportedly the first African-American to play on the field. He was the star of Drake's football team, and he was pegged as a contender for the Heisman Trophy, an award given annually to the most outstanding college football player. Going into their game against Oklahoma A&M in the Missouri Valley Conference, the Drake Bulldogs were undefeated with five wins. Bright led the nation in total offense and was skilled in rushing and passing, largely contributing to the team's success. If Drake won the game against Oklahoma, they would get the conference title. But word went around before the game that Oklahoma A&M's coach, Jennings' Brian Whitworth, was telling his team to target Bright and get him out of the game. In the first quarter, Oklahoma a defensive lineman Wilbanks Smith hit Bright several times. One of those times, Smith forearmed Bright in the face, breaking Bright's jaw. Bright was not wearing a face mask, which was not mandatory at the time. Bright stayed in the game for several more plays after the blow, but he was eventually in too much pain to continue playing. Drake lost the game 27-14. The day after the game, the Des Moines Sunday Register published a six-photograph sequence of the incident. The photographs showed that Smith threw the blow after Bright had handed the ball to fullback G. McComer. Photographers John Robinson and Don Altang won the 1952 Pulitzer Prize for photography for their captures of the incident. Smith got hate mail for assaulting Bright, but he also got letters of support from white supremacists. The incident led to a rule change that required players to leave the game if they were caught striking an opponent with a forearm, elbow, or locked hand. Flagrantly rough play and unsportsmanlike conduct was also penalized with a mandatory suspension. The NCAA Rules Committee also made it mandatory for players to wear helmets with face masks made of non-breakable molded plastic with round edges. After the 1961 season, the Rules Committee recommended that players wear mouth protectors. Bright was playing football again in two weeks after having a tooth removed and his jaws wired together. Bright didn't win the Heisman. He finished fifth in the balloting for the trophy. And though he was the number one pick for the Philadelphia Eagles in 1952, he decided to play in the Canadian Football League instead. Drake University withdrew from the Missouri Valley Conference because Oklahoma A&M refused to discipline Smith. The conference did not acknowledge the incident. Oklahoma returned to the conference for football in 1971. Decades after the incident, Smith maintained that the assault was not racially motivated and that people were making those kinds of plays against star athletes in many games. In a 1980 interview, Bright stated his belief that the incident was racially motivated. Bright died of a heart attack in 1983. In 2005, Oklahoma State University President David Schmidtley wrote a letter to Drake University apologizing for the incident. I'm Eve Chefcoat and hopefully you know a little more about history today than you did yesterday. If you've seen any good history memes lately, you can send them to us on social media at TDIHCPodcast. Or you can go the old-fashioned route and send us an email at com. Thanks for tuning in, and we'll see you again tomorrow.